Welcome to Required Listening. I'm your host, Scott Goldman, Executive Director of the Grammy Museum. Each week in the Clive Davis Theater, I have the unique opportunity to speak to artists from across the musical spectrum about their career, their inspiration, and their creative process. With Required Listening, I'm thrilled that I can bring these conversations to you. On today's episode, my interview with Sheryl Crow. We talked just after she released her latest album, Be Myself. Sheryl Crow is one of the most successful singer-songwriters of the last two decades. Her multi-platinum album, Tuesday Night Music Club, ties together a loose, eclectic sound with truly polished and personal songwriting. She won three Grammys for that work and went to write and release hits such as If It Makes You Happy, Every Day is a Winding Road, and A Change Would Do You Good. She survived a bout with breast cancer, adopted two young boys, and continued making her personal brand of rock and roll. And we talk quite a bit about being an artist decades into her career and what that means. We also spend some time talking about the current political and social climate and how that affects her thinking about songwriting and the things that are important to her. This is an artist who is eager to continue her creative journey. So let's go to the Clive Davis Theater and listen to my conversation with Cheryl Crow. Would you please welcome Cheryl Crow? this in there yeah professional uh, moderation here know what to do with the microphone first hi there hi thank you for being here oh my pleasure i can't believe i've never been to this museum yeah well better late than never right i know exactly i don't live here anymore so and you're getting ready to have your 10th anniversary coming up next year. and i moved 11 years ago so all right all right so you missed us you you missed the window a little bit i'm here yes we're very happy about that but i want to talk about the new record We'll wind the Wayback Machine. You know, we'll get that going a little bit later. But the new record, I suspect that there's a little bit of a hint of what's going on in the title. Be Myself. Yeah. um, It was the most joyful experience I've ever had making a record. We made the whole record. I worked with my old buddy, Jeff Trott, and we called in Chad Blake, who worked on my early records. So the three of us have this thing. And we made the whole album in about a month. And there was just so much in the ether. And that particular song, you know, it kind of makes fun of the absurdity of what's happening today and what what gets... Talking um, about hipsters. Yeah, yeah. what kind of gets um, earmarked as being valid and important, you know, with followers, 99 million followers and hanging out in juice bars and all that. And just this idea that if you can't be someone else, that I guess you'll just be yourself. Which, like, that's a consolation prize. So, And then it wound up being the title track. And I think... Really, truth be told, it really is where I'm at. I mean, I feel like, hey, I'm my age, and I love it, and I don't want to be anybody else. I don't want to be younger. Um, I want to look younger, but I don't want to do anything about it. (laughs) I don't want to do what it takes to look younger. So, you know, it's just about acceptance, and it's really brought me a lot of joy. Well, and and, and I want to talk about being, you know, kind of an artist who's, had a 30-year career. In elder statesman. Well, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to let you describe it because any way that I describe it, I will get pilloried for. But before we get there, you mentioned, and you've talked about this in interviews, about kind of the, you know, the sense of that there's a lot of fear in the ether and we're in this very strange time in our country. And I'm wondering, despite all of that and how you could get really negative about that, 
Is that a good climate for a songwriter? I think ears open, eyes open, heart open is, um, if you approach your life like that, then your art will really reflect that. And I have two small boys, so everything I do right now in my life is, I'm experiencing everything for the first time. And also there's a sense of urgency with regard to the world and the environment and the truth and the life that I set up for them and what I model to them that has everything to do with everything. And it definitely is reflected on this record. And I also have this other belief that music, it really represents who we are. Art is the thing that catalogs who we are in our evolution, all the way back to hieroglyphics, our paintings, our writings, our music. It tells us who we have been throughout our history. And there's always been, you know, prefab pop. There's always been singer-songwriter. There's always been, like, the outsiders, you know, documenting what's going on sociopolitically. And I feel like right now it's important, at least for me and for artists like me, to, to use this forum or this idiom to really give voice to what we're all experiencing and what people my age right. are discussing. Mm-hmm. And there's something really liberating about being my age and not writing songs for pop radio, which is geared towards the 13 to 25-year-olds, yeah. you know. So um, it was either going to be Be Myself or Music for Grown-Ups. It was, <laughs> that was the title. <laughs> but, but we are, I mean, we are in this point, and, and this is something that I would imagine you react to as an artist. We are in this point where we've never been more connected than any time in our history. And yet, one man's opinion, we are more disconnected than we've ever I, I don't think that that's one man's opinion. And that is all over this record from the very first song all the way to the end. The fact that we're so addicted to just the overload that our, our iPhones give us that we crave it when we turn it off. There's like a little bit of a detox and... But yet, the thing that's supposed to be connecting us is the thing that's creating the chasm between us. And it's all over the record. Um, You know, there's a song called Roller Skate, which I actually wrote for my kids, and they sing on the song. And it's about wanting human contact, like sitting in a room with someone, and yet we're all on our iPhones, and we're not actually in the room together. And the lyric is, put your phone away, let's roller skate. But yeah, it's all over. I I, I, I was literally, I was in Austin, Texas yesterday. And I got up in the morning and I went to have breakfast at the hotel and I see these three very nice people walk in, clearly having a casual breakfast, probably tourists enjoying, you know, Austin, Texas. And the three of them sit down, they pull out their phones and they proceed to look at their phones. And in the entire time, and I was there for at least an hour, I didn't see them say one word to each other. It's actually really... um... Well, I'll tell you something funny about this record. Two things. We made the record in school hours. Like, I took my kids to school, dropped them off, came home, and we di- we recorded between 8.30 in the morning and 5.30 at night. And it was great. That's a good um, schedule, actually. It is a great schedule, and it I think it did not at all undermine my creativity or my inspiration. In fact, I felt like as soon as I got in there, it was just like, you know, vomiting out yeah. songs. It was just like I couldn't write fast But you But have, you have talked about, you know, kind of now that you're a parent, the need to schedule inspiration. Yeah, but this was a really inspired record for a number of reasons, but it was undeniable what was going on sociopolitically in our country and what it was doing to me. And I actually did go through a detox period and I do not, I keep my phone on me, but it's always on silent. When I'm with my kids, I don't have my phone on me and um, I will never regret missing phone calls or texts or any of that to be present 
and to model that for my children. Because there will be a point in our evolution as people on this planet where it is going to cause some major major problems. And it's really had me thinking, I mean, as an artist and as a human being about what we're becoming. One of the things, you know, I laughed in reading about you and preparing for this interview, that, that you did not want to become a parent dinosaur. I am a dinosaur. (laughs) I'm a total, and I am proud of it. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm just not technological. Like in the studio, I know how to, you know, I know how to get my stuff on tape. I know, you know, vaguely how to work Pro Tools. But if it comes to Facebook and Twittering and all, Twittering, see? (laughs) (laughs) Tweeting. Um, it's just not my world, you know. Yeah. That's not what I grew up yeah, with. Yeah, I, so. I get that. In in the the preparation for this record, I read that you went back and listened, mm-hmm. which is not something I think you're inclined to do. No. To the second, your second and third albums, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering, as you were doing that, what did you hear? Did you learn something from listening back to those? Yeah, albums? I mean, I had made the Feels Like Home record, which was a really great experience. Mm-hmm. And I, I set out to, I was living in Nashville, and I wanted to experiment with writing with Nashville songwriters because I think some of the greatest songwriters that are out there right now are in Nashville. And they write in threes, and it was really a stretch for me because I've only ever co-written with like one or two people. And but I think what wound up happening was I learned a lot, I stretched a lot, but by the time I got to making this record, my buddy Jeff had just moved to town, and I said, I just want to go in and feel like that young artist again, close the door and just throw stuff into the stew and see what kind of concoction we can come up with and kind of like a laboratory. And so we went back and we listened to some of it, really mainly to get to refresh ourselves on the spirit of it. And the second record was the result of the first record becoming so massive. I think it sold eight or nine million records and we were really overexposed. And I went from being like the golden child to being the most hated person in music. And then the third record was the result of, you know, coming to terms with all of it and going in and having had a bad breakup and it all was on the record right there. And the thing that was, that created the continuity of all of it though was our writing process when I would write with Jeff was me always on the bass and singing and him playing guitar, great guitar riffs and lines and a drummer or a drum programmer. So we said, let's just yeah. do that again. Let's just do that. And what, what is it about him that makes the collaboration work so well? I think we were in prison together in a past life. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I think part of it is that I mean, he's really a true artist in his own right, like the way he looks at life. And he's also one of the most exceptional human beings I've ever known as far as his generous, compassionate spirit. But the other thing is he plays in a way that is strangely kind of unschooled. And although he's he's a great guitar player and he writes great riffs, but they're not like technically bombastic. They're just, it's what I relate to. You know, there's something kind of ignorant about it and something sort of rough around the edges and it just it's like a it's a musical compliment to my weird way of writing lyrics yeah. and things so he um I, I read that you guys spend some time mm-hmm. before you actually get into the studio and really work on songs kind of talking things down and and talking about yeah. what, what what you're doing i wonder what what are those conversations like what are they about well I'm sure that my conversations with him, although what ultimately came out of our conversations was the song, my conversations with him would be like the conversations you would have with your wife or 
your best friend or your parents or whoever about what was happening. Hmm. And the things I was seeing, particularly as a mom, a mom of young kids, was just this idea of how do we navigate or how do we help our kids navigate how hard it is to grow up. I mean, growing up is hard anyway, without all the trappings of likes and dislikes and bullying and being embarrassed online and just all all the information that's thrust on them that that dictates they make decisions that we wouldn't have made it at that early age. And so, you know, those were the conversations. The conversations about how ugly we were becoming during the election campaign, the fear, the mistrust. I mean, all these things that were sort of hanging in the ether would just wind up being our conversation in the morning. Hmm. And we'd go in in the morning and fire up a drum groove. And the next thing you knew, there were like three songs about what we discussed, yeah. you know? Yeah. I read an interview with him, mm-hmm. with Jeff, and, and he said the following. I kept thinking, if I was a Sheryl Crow fan, this is Jeff talking, what would I like? It's not too shiny, but it has enough brilliance in it. And um, And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why Jeff Trott is my (laughs) musical husband. (laughs) But as I read that, I kind of read into that, that there's a certain amount of raw quality to the music that you want to retain. Am I right in my thinking? Well, one of the funny, and we we do this every record. We write and we get something together and then we start overdubbing to it and we're like, we're just going to make a really great demo of it. And then we try to redo it so that we make it great and then it never holds up to the initial spontaneous feel of the demo. And so the records aren't perfect mm. and they are rough around the edges in all the most... Um, authentic places. And that's what I love, you know. I feel like there's a lot of skin left on the pavement mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. Know? He also used the phrase, and I particularly love this, an irreverence toward recording technique. Yes. Is it, we it, are reversed elitists. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, what, what, what does that mean to you? What, what, what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, part of it is just not going back and making everything perfect. I mean, mm. you have the option with Pro Tools to make everything so perfect that um, Literally, you fall asleep you can, midway through it. You know, quantize it. It can sit on yeah, the beat and exactly. I, and I was, um, I'm sure, either on my way to school or on way, my way home from school listening to <laughs> NPR. And there was a thing about, I think it was the Swedish production groups that do a lot of the big hits for a lot of different people. And from Katy Perry to Rihanna. And I think they started with Britney. And they were talking about how they had actually mapped out the success of a commercial pop hit, and that is the six minute, no, the six second, second right. attention span. And if you don't hold their attention for six seconds, then they'll change the channel. And that's why you have to have a hook or a repetitive line every six seconds. And I was listening to that thinking, holy... I'm retiring. I'm retiring. Yeah. I am a dinosaur. Yeah. So, yeah, I you get know, that. yeah, part of our ammo is to just never head towards the vortex of mediocrity by following anybody's rule about how records are supposed to be made. Yeah. You also, you also, in addition to working with Jeff, you had this other kind of secret weapon. You mentioned his name, Chad Blake. Yes. The great engineer. Uh, we, could, we could go on and on about the records that he's, yeah. he's worked on. First of all, the dude lives in Wales. How did you get yeah. him? I mean, how did you was, get him on this record? It was crazy. We, um, we had a whole bunch of songs 
And I looked at him and was like, what? So we should record these, even though we'd already recorded them. And we're like, what's our dream? What would be like the perfect scenario? And we were both like Chad, Chad Blake. And I hadn't seen him in actually almost maybe 16 or 17 years. Mm. I emailed him. I said, I don't know what you're doing or where you're doing whatever it is you're doing, but I have these songs and I can't imagine doing them without you and or, or having anyone else mix it. Is there even a chance that you would come, uh, come to America? And I got an email right back saying, when and yes. Hmm. And he did. And the interesting thing, too, about it was that I hadn't realized when I got him on the phone, he was talking, you know, very softly. And he had had throat cancer the year before. He was doing great. But I think the two of us, in the time that we had not worked together, both of us having had cancer, both of us have, having had kids and my having adopted kids, both of us having lived some real... Um, Stuff. Yeah, some real stuff, some challenging, hey, remember who you are moments. We came back together, and it was really euphoric. It was really a celebration of life and of art and how much music still matters and how much we believe it still changes the molecules, and and it was just a great time. Every day at 4.30, we stopped and had a Guinness on tap. I love that. Yes. I love that. It was a sacred time. Can I come to the next session? Yes, Um, you can. You describe the way he works, and, and I love this word you referred to the way he, he does his thing as he tampers with the music and i'm wondering if you can describe that yeah for us. he um you know we throw our demos up and it would be like aha okay let's try to recut this and then we wouldn't beat it and then we'd say okay well what is is this good enough and he'd be like just leave me for a moment and then we'd come <laughs> back and he would have just like I don't know, it's like he poured special sauce all over it. You know what I mean? <laughs> and um, he's just good that way. I mean, I don't know what the heck he does. He's, you know, everything's in a computer now. I'm really, like, I'm not kidding you when I say I'm a dinosaur. I'm always, like, looking at the screen going, wow, that music looks really cool, you know? <laughs> what is that? I know, um, charts and graphs. and uh, But he'd, like, have knobs and be twiddling with sound waves changing. And I would listen back to it, and it would just be... It was just like a party going on in the drum track, you know, and I already knew what the drum track sounded like, but then he would make it sound like a party. So yeah. he's just, he's an artist. You know, that's the gift I've given myself is just being surrounded by artists mm. in their mm. in their domain. Yeah, and, and in his world, in that engineering world, it can really make the difference in terms of achieving your vision. Yeah, and there's a certain amount of letting go that goes along with that mm-hmm. for all you artists that are out there in cyberland. I think part of the thing about inviting people, other artists in, is to let them bring to it what they do and not having attachment to what you already have. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you'll really be surprised by how much your art is enhanced by just allowing people to show up and put a little bit of them yeah. into your art. You, you talk a little bit about Jeff and his, you know, his ability to take the guitar and create something cool. It strikes me that listening to the record, this is a very guitar forward record. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm wondering yeah, it's if- mostly, It's mostly groove and bass and guitar. Yeah. Is it important for you to kind of have that riff, that guitar sound to work against? As a, as a songwriter or vocalist? It has been off and on. I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes it hasn't been. This record, I felt really itchy 
just really, in fact, we're getting ready to go in and do an EP. I still am feeling like I'm not done yet. Mm. I think part of it, I don't, actually, I don't know what part of it is. I just feel, I feel, I do, I feel like, a, I feel a sense of urgency to be writing and recording right now because I feel like what we're going through is not even just even as a nation. I mean, we played in Manchester the night before the Ariana Grande concert. Mm. And the world is different. Mm. And I feel like that music is the thing that people come into a room, they don't know each other. And this is the old days I'm talking about before, before this. And, um, but it was where you came to want your body to experience yeah. something. And you wanted to have a connection with people that you would probably never see again. And that's what we're, this is what's destroying our humanity, is this, this lack of being able to be together and feel a connection and feel empathy and compassion and rhythm together and an ebb and a flow and spirit. So I just feel like I gotta, I need, I, give me a bass and put a mic up. Yeah. I, I feel like, you know, there are more of us that are feeling this way. Hmm. So it's, it's, for me, it's a great time to be an artist and I know that music, you know, it finds its way, no matter how that is. In the old days, you make a record and you know how many people own it because they buy it. So you don't know how many people are hearing it, but it does it does find its way. Well, and, and, and also, I mean, this has been proven over time. Every time there is some social disruption or some natural disaster or something that affects millions of people, who are the first artists to step up? Musicians. And I believe that, you know, and, and I would like to see radio play more of the songs that I think are really reflecting. But then there's, there is the aspect that people are, they want entertainment. Yeah. I mean, we've seen that. People mm. want entertainment. They love reality. They love celebrity. They love, so maybe they don't want to hear it, but I think there will be a moment where our starvation for it will become more. And, and, and I'm convinced that all things go, you know, in cycles. And yeah. at some point that this will come back. And speaking of, Cycles, and you mentioned this earlier, mm -hmm. and, and, and I'm going to be delicate here. Um, as, as an artist who has had a 30-plus year career, there is a certain... Wait a minute. There, there, is, there, there, is, there is a certain... 25. <laughs> okay, 25. Um, uh, my math is terrible. Um, there is a certain liberation in not worrying about the next radio hit and being able to do the art that you feel is important. Yeah, I mean... I Does it take a while to come to that? No. Um, well, no. I mean, there's a certain point where you put your ego down and you say, you know what, I'm not going to be... I'm not going to get played on the radio all the time anymore. Mm. I'm, I'm old. And that's okay. Yeah. But, I, but also, at the same time that I'm saying that in one ear, I'm also saying, but your best stuff is, is yet to come. Your best stuff's in front of you. You have more to say now, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm more making music for myself, and I'm loving playing more than I've ever played in my life. I've, mm -hmm. I've never had so much fun playing music as I am now. And, you know, you just have to be where and who you are. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's where the liberation is. I mean, if you're fighting that, then you're you're stuck in right. a moment. When I was listening to you know to be myself and 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 both that track and a number of others, I mean, it just so instantly strikes me as my gosh, this is Cheryl Crow music. And I'm wondering if, as you listen back to it when you were finished recording, it's like 
yep, that's me. <laughs> I, I, mean, I, mean, I, I don't. I mean, well, because I feel like all my records are definitely me. And I, I never listen to my own music, nor do I watch myself on TV, nor do I ever read any of the reviews or <laughs> any of it. Because I'm just, that's just my makeup. I can't yeah. enjoy it. Yeah. But, you know, that being said, I feel like there, there are frustrations on different records, and I hear them because I, I live them. Mm. And for me, for this record and the Globe Sessions and the Sheryl Crow record, and um, those records were experiences. Yeah. I, I came in and I walked out with a record. The other records were more, there was more gnashing of teeth, more trying to figure out what am I, what, what kind of record am I making, what am I saying, you know. Not nearly as fun as this record was. Well, well and you've called this effortless. You've called making this I mean, record effort. It literally effortless. was like barfing out lyrics. I just couldn't. It was like, <laughs> I, I, you know, like full right, I'm chunks. Having a, I'm of having records. a mental image here. Hold on. <laughs> full chunks of lyrics would come out, <laughs> carrots and all. <laughs> Sorry, that's gross. I have two young boys. These are the things we talk about: barfing, pooping. You know, it's how okay. many of you have boys? So you know the drill, right? Okay. <laughs> you know, as as you progress through your career, and, and as we said, you know, being an artist who's had a long career, and as you start to, you know, to think about kind of where you're at, are there either things that you still want to do or things at your point that you want to avoid? Um... <sighs> I don't know about the avoiding thing. I'm the person that walks up to the cliff and goes, well, look at that. I think I can do it. And then I jump off. And then I, it's later on when I hit the rocks. I was like, well, maybe that wouldn't have been <laughs> bit better if I hadn't done that. But there are things I still want to do. I just want to keep making music. I feel, you know, I know I have a finite amount of time because who wants to see a 75-year-old lady squeezing herself into leather jeans and, <laughs> you know, kicking high kicks? But I do, I feel... I'm going to hold judgment on that. I know, not, well, gonna... you know. If I can do it, I'm going to do it. Okay. But I love my work. I love my, my, I love my job. Mm. You know, my kids, for the first time on this record, came in and got to see me doing work. And they finally realized that it's, it isn't just fun. Yeah. That there were lots of years of sitting in front of a piano practicing and lots of years of watching people playing and listening and trying to pick out songs and all that. There was a lot of legwork that went into it. And my 10-year-old asked me recently, he said, well, you're famous, right? And I said, well, I'm well-known because I've done this job for a long time and I've had some success. Well, if you're famous, then we're famous, right? <laughs> so, and we're going through that right now. It's an interesting and way so, to look at yes. it. Yes, yeah. well, yeah, yeah it's like yeah. by osmosis. So, yeah, just the idea that, you know, I, I'm really fortunate, and I have been around for a long time, but yeah. there was a lot longer that was before that. And so right now it's just, it's such a gift to be able to go and just make records the way I want to do it. I want sure. to keep doing it. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm wondering, you, you talked about your sons. How has parenthood kind of changed your creative I'm exhausted. <laughs> tired all the time. <laughs> Um, well, uh, I made the Detours record three months after I adopted Wyatt, and, and I'd also just completed, I think it, I waited for a long time after I had breast cancer to sit down and write. Um, had a really bad breakup and breast cancer all at the same time, and I thought, you know what, I'm not going to use music to save myself or to distract myself. I'm going to sit with this, I'm going to hold the emotions, and I'm going to 
digest it. I'm going to process it, and then I'm going to write a record. And in the meantime, this little boy came along. I adopted him, and he was three months old. And what that created in me was a, I just looked at life a lot differently, compounded mm. with all these other things. But it did create a sense of urgency in me to write the truth and mm. the reality of what it means to be alive and present. And that has stuck with me. And um, I do probably care more about my words now than I ever have because I, I want to leave behind something that matters and that's great and that documents who we are in a, you know, in a truthful way, um, warts and all. Yeah. So it's great. You know, it's informing everything for me. Sure. I want to go back a little bit. And, and, and you've talked often about your influences, whether it's Exile Era Stones or or Graham Parsons, or the Burritos, or Emmylou Harris, whatever. But I'm wondering, when, when you were growing up and your mother was a piano teacher, what music do you remember hearing around the house? Oh, wow. Well, first of all, my parents were in a swing band. And now I lived in a really small town, so they were not in a big swing band, but they were in a, a popular swing band that played a lot. And they would come home with their friends, and like they'd play local towns, and they'd play events or whatever. And they would come home, and we had a giant Magnavox, and um, they would play music and dance. Huh. And sometimes some of them would jam along and stuff, but it was a lot of Stan Kenton, um, a lot of Buddy Rich, a lot of, a lot of swing band music, a lot of uh, the great crooners. But they also played a lot of popular music, too. Hmm. Like, we had Tavistry and James Taylor, and we had Chicago. We had Stevie Wonder. We had Mahalia Jackson. I mean, they were really... They were great about subconsciously exposing us to all kinds of different, lots of different kinds of music, yeah. as well as classical. I mean, we, my sisters and I are all three trained in classical, so. Was there an artist that you heard either at home or on the radio when, when you were young, maybe, you know, the first time that you went, that's what I want to do? Um, well, I will definitely say that um, three artists in particular, Elton John was a big one for me because I played piano yeah. and I could pick out those songs on the piano and, I felt like that's what I could do. You know, I wasn't playing guitar yet. I did want to rock, but that was my thing. Sure. Um, but Tapestry and Mudslide Slim, those, those two records, I knew every word, mm -hmm. and I saw myself in that music. I yeah. saw my troubadour self in that music. That's my earliest recollection. We, um, we were talking earlier, and, and you were telling me, and, and we've emailed about a teacher that, that yes. you had yeah. when, when you were young. So just parenthetically, the, the Grammy Museum, in partnership with the Academy every year, gives out a Grammy Music Educator Award. And Cheryl had emailed me about a teacher that she had when you were how old? Well, I grew up in the church choir, and she was the choir director. And then she later went on to, she taught at the college level, not very far from my hometown. And then she came back and she started teaching. And I don't know how many of you guys, anybody in here follow country music? So um, I'm from a really small town called Kennett, Missouri, and she had David Nail, who has had a lot of success, yeah. Trent Tomlinson, yeah. who had some success, but is also a fantastic songwriter, Blackjack Billy, but not only that, state winning, like national winning choirs, really has taught kids all along, myself included, not only how to sing correctly, um, how to make the most of your voice, but just a broad appreciation for music and for blending and for being a part 
of a collective musical sound. And um, I've just, I've never known anyone like her who has turned up so many students who probably ignored what their parents said about getting a real job and went on because they just wanted more mm-hmm. music. Mm-hmm. But also the larger interest in, in music education and keeping music education and keeping teachers like Veretta in schools, why is, why is that important to you? Well, I don't know how many of you guys know, I was an elementary school teacher. I taught music in St. Louis, kindergarten through sixth. And I think it was within three or four years after I moved to LA, they discontinued music in that school district. And I've seen that happening a lot. It it would sort of get handed off to, you know, 10 minutes, three days a week, and the school, the classroom teacher would teach it. And for me, and I think most school districts or a lot of school districts are bringing them back, and certainly Save the Music has been tantamount with getting programs that weren't state-provided or at least um, even locally subsidized. They've been really helpful in getting instruments in and, and implementing programs. But I just feel like um, that our creativity is getting squashed, you know, smaller and smaller and smaller. And it has so much to do with what the future looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, kids need a creative outlet. It's great for, you know, really both sides of the brain. It's great for expression, particularly at a time when there's a lot of chaos around us, a lot of pressure. Every kid's supposed to go to the greatest college. Music is that place where you go and you're moved. You know, you're... And, and I feel the same way about sports, you know. Um, I feel the same way about recess. Our brains need a break from learning exactly what we're supposed to know for a test. And it's, it's vital, I and, think. And, and a break from those smartphones. Y- yes, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I have to ask you, in the time we have remaining, I have to ask you, you're working on a duets <laughs> project. And, and this is duets with a bunch of great artists, and we can talk about whoever. But you do it duet with Johnny Cash. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I had the good fortune um, of knowing Johnny and June. In fact, June was one of the first people I met in 1993. I got to do Idiot's Delight, which is a a Sunday night radio show that Vince Gelsey used to host. And it would just go on. It wasn't even like, it wasn't an hour show. It could just go on and on like three or four hours. And I was on with June Carter. And my first record to come out, it wasn't really even making a dent yet. And I got to sit there and just absorb her storytelling. I knew a lot of the Carter family material. I got to play along. Um, it was just fascinating. And then after that, we were friends. And then for years, we kept in touch. And I knew Johnny. And when June passed, he asked me to sing at her funeral. And then mm-hmm. after, she, um, about a month after she passed, I think his his um, son-in-law gave him a copy of this song that I'd written called Redemption Day. And we were entering the Gulf War, and he got a hold of this song, which is kind of about war, and he wanted to record it. And he called me and asked me about almost every line in the song, well, what, just so that before he sang it, he would know what the impetus was or what hmm. the meaning of it was so that he could... Hmm. I mean, he was Johnny Cash. He wasn't just going to sing something, you know? Which is why we Which shows you what kind him. of great, what an artist yeah, he was. Yeah, exactly. And that's yeah. why we believed him when he sang something. And so he, um, he recorded it, and, and then he passed away about three months later. Cut to recently, and I'm making this collaborative record with people that I've loved and known and worked with for years, and yet have never asked to come collaborate with me. I, I called his family and said, could we use the demo vocal? Because it, it had come out on a Rick Rubin record, a, a Rick Rubin produced record. 
at some point, but we asked, could we do the demo? So we combined our voices and recut mm-hmm. it, and it's it's really special. I, I, I got to ask you this. So, so the first time you hear his voice coming through is your singing. It really, I mean, it made me cry. In fact, we were doing it on stage when we were opening up for Rascal Flats. We had... We were doing the song and we had his voice come in halfway yeah. through and you would feel a gasp. And we had images also up there. We had war images and images of America during the Dust Bowl and just amazing, beautiful images. And then you would see some images of Johnny Cash and you hear his voice singing and you would feel an audible gasp in the audience. And people, you would just see them starting to like get really choked up. And that's, mm. I know I can speak for my band when I say we, we all felt the same. Mm. So. Who, who else? Who else is is on the record? Well, Chris Christopherson is one of the Chris Christopherson is one of the reasons that I decided to make this record, and yeah. he was having um, you know vast memory, memory loss, issues, and yeah. we went and recorded a bunch of his songs. So I asked him if he'd come record with me, and then I just started calling people that I've loved and known, like Stevie Nicks and Don Henley, who was one of the first people to give me a gig, and Joe Walsh and Vince Gill, who's practically my neighbor, and gosh, who else? Who else, Scooter? It's a, it's a pretty good list right there. Keith. Oh, Keith. Yeah. Keith Richards, um, also one of the first people to give me a gig. Neil Young. It's a great, cool. fun record. When might, when might we see that? Um, or hear that? I don't know. I mean, I just, I think it'll be out early next year. Great. So. Great. I have to ask you about, about one other artist. And you've talked about this artist. And I think this is someone who is criminally underappreciated, Bobby Gentry. Yeah, actually, you know, it's kind of funny because we looked her up the other day um, because she really only had the two hits and then she just evaporated (sighs) into obscurity. And I think by her own choice, I think she felt like it was just, it was a world that she she couldn't relate to at all. Yeah, but one of the very few female artists at the time who produced her own records, who wrote her own songs, who, I mean, she was truly an independent artist of a type, particularly for women at the time, that was very interesting. Yeah, and you know, it's really interesting, because my second record, I was slated to work with the producer that did my first record, and he didn't wind up doing it, and I wound up just being in the studio, and my manager, who's still with me, said, you just make your demos and just see what you wind up with. You know how to record, just do it. And, you know, really up into that time, there wasn't any record labels that would say, well, just Mm. produce yourself. You're a woman, you can do it. (laughs) Or let's get a female producer. There weren't any. And there still are very few. In fact, I'm not sure I can even name any. You know, it's an odd thing. And I'm always encouraging women, particularly women who are musicians, um, to just go in. And if you know what you want for your music and you can verbalize it, um, and not even in a technical way, then, you know, you're ahead of the game. Well, and this is a very good place to kind of put the button on the conversation. So now you're at a point in your career where there are other young artists, particularly women, who are citing you as an influence in their career. I wrote down a couple. Um, Kelsey Ballerini has talked about you. Cam has particularly talked about you. And she said... She's a great example of being strong, being so easygoing and sweet, but also completely ready to speak her mind. And I'm wondering, when you, when you hear young artists speak of you that way, what do you think? 
I don't know. I mean, I get squeamish. You know, I love the work part of it. Um, one of the really, truly big blessings in my life was was moving out of L.A., I have to say. It, I, um, and I'm sorry. No, no offense to anybody No here. offense. It's not the people. But I was raised in such a small town, mm-hmm. and I grew up when my musicians were brought to me in um, Rolling Stone and Cream and Teen Beat and 16. You know, I mean, I grew up um, watching Friday Night Special, and I, I only got glimpses of who the people were. And so they were so much larger than life for me than what they are now. Like what, what our young artists see of other generations of artists is the same tabloidy stuff that is just, you know, it's all floating around in yeah. cyberspace. And, but I grew up wanting to just, I wanted to be great, you know, and I wanted to be... I wanted to make a difference, and I wanted to make music that mattered and that held some place in history. So when I hear people talking about me, I just, you know, (laughs) I get squeamish, but um, it's really flattering. You know, I I want young women and young men, I want artists to know that there is not only A, room for everyone, Mm -hmm. but B, it's important um, to get out there and write your truth, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, speak it. Yeah. Well, speaking of speaking the truth, we we could not be more pleased that you took the time to come down here. Oh, and, my pleasure. And my pleasure. and and have a little chat. So, I'm much better at playing. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was pretty good. So, ladies and gentlemen, Cheryl Crow. It's always great to hear songwriters talk about the process. For Cheryl, it's that conversation she'd have in the morning with her collaborator, Jeff Trott, using that as the tool to begin songwriting. And I love the way she described the almost magical work of the engineer, Chad Blake. And to that end, I would encourage you to find some of the work he's done with Mitchell Froom with artists such as the Latin Playboys or Richard Thompson. So that's your required listening for today. We've got fresh episodes coming to you every Thursday. Let's keep the conversation going. We're on all the social platforms at Grammy Museum. If you plan to be in Los Angeles, I hope you'll visit us at the Grammy Museum. All the information is at our website, grammymuseum.org. Finally, shout out to our required listening team, Jason James, Justin Joseph, Jim Canella, Lynn Sheridan, Miranda Moore, Jason Hoke, Chandler Mays, Nick Stumpf, Len Brown, Ghost, and Sean and the entire team at How Stuff Works. We'll see you next time. I'm Scott Goldman.